0: CHAPTER Eleven, JOURNEY TO Nineveh. Early in the day at Tashwada's palace, a soldier appeared at the temple entryway. He was a tall Marianu, dressed in a charioteer uniform, with a long coat made of thinly hammered bronze flakes attached to a leather underlayer. The protective metal petals gently clanged together as he walked. His helmet looked like an upside-down beehive, also covered with leaves of bronze. He hesitated a moment, to peer around the foyer, waiting for his eyes to adjust to the dim, inside light. Nizer the scribe, acknowledged Ramsay when he approached. "'Let the king know the horses are ready,' the Mariano driver said. The scribe nodded and left the room, disappearing down a hallway. Finding Tushrata and Uni in their personal chambers, Nizer bowed and spoke. "'Sir, the horses are waiting.' Tushrata nodded his head. "'Uni, all set?' "'Almost. You must dress warmly, Tush.' Yuni was in her dressing room with Sala, her temple attendant, who helped her don a heavy fur overcoat. Thank you, Sala. Yuni shifted the weight on her shoulders and waited while the maid tied a warm hat on her head. Okay, you're done, Sala smiled at her queen. Thank you. Uni turned and called to her husband. Are you ready, Tush? No one answered. Now where is he, she thought. Why would he just disappear like that? She checked the nearby rooms. I saw him going toward the inner court, Sala called after her retreating figure. Uni turned right into a wide hallway with white, painted plaster walls and a cleanly swept stone floor. The end of this hallway was the symbolic end of Uni's private life. A thick, wooden door marked the point of separation between public scrutiny and personal privacy. A guard was always posted on the other side of this door to ensure their privacy was preserved. Uni pushed open the door. There you are, she said, as she entered a large, spacious room, 30 feet long and 20 feet wide, with 14-foot ceilings and walls. These were also painted with beautiful images. It was the inner court, one of the busiest rooms in the palace. Tushrada conducted his public affairs in this room. Guests, waiting their turn to talk to him, could review the Mitanni history represented in the colorful frescoes. Tushrata, Nizer, and Ramsay stood in the inner court, discussing the touch-up job Tush ordered for the investiture scene. This fresco was the most critical document in the whole palace. It represented Tushratta's right to rule, depicting the moment Ishtar handed the kingship to Tushratta and proclaiming his privileged divinity. Well, it was not Tushratta exactly. In this picture, Ishtar actually gave the sovereignty to Tushratta's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Kirta. Are you ready? Yuni asked him again, impatient and irritated. The frescoes of Ishtar always angered her. It meant her husband clung to his ancestors' gods instead of adopting the one god she believed in. It had always been a sore point in their union, and now she had to travel on this winter day to discuss the very goddess she did not believe in. She just knew it was going to be a cold and miserable trip. Tishrada nodded as Sala placed another overcoat around Yuni's shoulders. Uni grabbed the lapels and pulled them tight to brace herself against the cold, and started toward the door. Nizer led the group from the inner court to the central patio, the Court of the Palms. Several palm trees jutted to the sky in the center of this space, and frescoes livened up the white stucco walls here, too. Uni followed the group through the three killing rooms between the Court of the Palms and the North Gate. These three rooms were built to protect the palace from invasion. Losing the protected ambiance of the front portico when she stepped outside, Euni was forced to squint into the brightness of the winter sky. She held her breath, but she already knew it was cold. She looked up to see the sun hiding behind a snow haze. The weak winter sun wouldn't even be warm enough to comfort her on this chilling, endless-seeming ride. "'Where is Citritush?' Euni asked. He brushed her away with a movement of his hand while he talked to Nizer, angering her even more. Sala walked in front of Uni to adjust her hat. Yuni's long braids hung down either side of her attractive face, while her brown eyes flashed in irritation. Sala would stay here and keep the palace together for her queen. She tucked the rest of Yuni's dark brown hair into a black scarf, covering her beautiful black sapphire earrings. This should do it. She placed a thick brown woolen hat on top of the veil as Yuni pulled her wool cloak closer around her. It was so cold, she couldn't even leave the front of the cloak open enough to show off her intricate bib necklace. The silver baubles really stood out if they were exposed enough to capture and reflect the daylight when she moved. She could have been a beautiful sight, sufficient to brighten this dreary day. Nothing was going right for her. Sala gave her a goodbye hug, just as Citri appeared. A young, attractive, lively teen, Citri was Yuni's niece, who had been entrusted to her care by Yuni's brother, Kikuli. Exceptionally skilled in horsemanship like her father, Sitri was sent to stay with Uni for two years to learn the intricacies of palace life and prepare for royal womanhood. It would be a three-day trip by chariot to Lalish, Traveling in style, accompanied by forty chariots, they would spend their nights in the royal palaces of Sinjar tonight and Nineveh the next. But this was not a parade of military might, nor was it a yearly visit to the vassal kingdoms. This was a side trip of quick, separate working vacations for the king and queen. The caravan would split up in Nineveh when the royals went their different ways. "'What are you planning to do about the problem in Leash? Tushrata asked Uni when they were settled, covered in robes in the royal coach. "'I want to see things for myself. There's so much gossip we have no idea what's really going on. We're not quite sure yet, are we, Sitri? "'No, we don't know at all, Aunt Yuni.' Have you located the Canaanite blue dye, Tush? Uni asked. No. Nothing has made sense about this from the very beginning. The soldiers I sent to meet the dye merchants were killed outside Kotna. Rumors say the Amorite Abdiashirta stole the dye. As of now, all you have to offer this goddess, if she is a goddess, is a box of lapis lazuli chunks and a cartful of wine and olive oil bottled in clay amphora. This tribute will go with you, but what else will fall apart? Why do things always have to be so difficult? I'm curious, Sitri began. What does the head priest in Lalish feel about all this? His name is Mudad, Yuni replied. He is pleased with her visitation and sees it as an omen, a prediction something is about to change. That temple is known for its independence streak, Toshwada said, but I have never felt animosity or disrespect from them. Have you, Yuni? She shook her head. No. There was some grumbling when we talked of changing the gods in the Sinjar temple, but the problem lessened when I offered presents. I convinced them the issue was semantics, a difference due to local dialects. I didn't know you were sending gifts, Tusharada shot an exasperated glance at his wife. Sometimes I wonder why we allow them to remain at all. It irritated him when his wife spent his wealth on things without telling him. I send gifts because Mudad appreciates them. You must never forget the long reach of the Yazidis and how numerous they are. She turned to Sitri. He thinks all I do is spend the gold he says we don't have. Ignoring his wife's jab, Tush shifted on the cushioned, blanketed seat, pulled his hands from under his cloak and rubbed them together. Although he possessed the latest in carriage and chariot, he was still sore and uncomfortable, bumping along a dirt road for long periods of time. Plus, it was frigid. I am sick of this temple thing, he told himself for the millionth time. He looked forward to being in Nuzi and watching his brother-in-law, Kikoli, work the horses. They would be alone, out on the plains, with the horses. He smiled as he blew warm breath into his hands. "'Where is Shadiwaza?' Tushwada groused after a long pause in the conversation. "'I would have expected our own son to come with us. I wanted to spend some time riding with him. He went with your brother, Artatama. Remember, you sent them northwest of here to rally support among the vassal fiefdoms above Carcamis?' I really would like to have Shadiwaza and Nuzi. He needs to learn more about the horses. They are our newest weapon and how the wars are won. But we need our vassals on our side, Yuni said in defense of their son. Shadiwaza and Artatama are helping us. Shadi needs to learn more about diplomacy as well. Yuni patted his arm in reassurance. Tushrata stood up for a while as they made their way along the rough, muddy, slushy corridor. Forty chariots protected the four vehicles. Sometimes the chariots were driven two by two, next to one another, but the bad weather left the road in poor condition. Today the procession trudged along in single file, digging deeper and deeper ruts into the beige-colored mud. The carts frequently tipped sideways, slowing down when their wheels fell into one mud- and water-filled pothole after another. The snow cover from the previous night couldn't decide whether to stay or go. They spent an uneventful night in Sinjar and exchanged goodbyes in Nineveh on the third day. After traveling together for two days and nights, they looked forward to going in different directions. "'Don't get run over by a horse,' Uni warned him. "'Don't cause any more rebellions inside the Empire,' Tush shot back, waving to her while trotting south with his Shepi Shari, his elite bodyguard, to spend a week in Nuzi. He could hardly wait to drive the Secret Chariot, the new one Kikuli was working on. Tush controlled the best equine military in the Middle East. Over the last few years, he'd collected a vast number of horses and instructed his chariot manufacturers to ramp up production. Their efficient design of the chariot made them mighty warriors. Tushrada was impressed with the plans of this latest model. The driver stood on a semi-solid platform of wood supports and animal hides. Twelve goatskins, covered with thin, hand-hammered bronze armor plates, made up the sides. Ten sheepskins were layered on the semi-firm floor, making it a big, roomy chariot. These new models sported wheels with eight spokes, allowing them to carry heavier loads. It would accommodate three men to ride into battle, giving Tushrata's army a definite edge. Uni needed time away from her husband, so she and Sitri could make sense of the Ishtar threat. Tushrata was Hurrian. His family had grown up with three main gods, Shelska, the Hurrian counterpart of Ishtar, was the goddess of fertility, war, and healing. Shimeji was the sun god, and Kashu the moon god. Because he felt comfortable with his gods, he didn't feel the need to bring new gods into his temples. Yuni felt differently. What do you make of Ishtar's appearance in Lalish, Aunt Yuni? Sitri wondered, as they resumed their northward journey without Tush. You seem quite concerned about this. I wonder if this is truly the real Ishtar. It could be a Jinni manifestation, come to fool us. However, it should be a simple answer. A talisman came from Ishtar's womb when she arrived. I will know quickly if she is a Jinni once I hold it. If she is divine, this talisman will have much power, and if I have possession of it, I will be in control. End of chapter.